Hello and welcome to the Wired Biohealth Podcast. My name is Jacqueline Hall and I am joined by your show's host, Dr. Evelyn Higgins. Hey, Jackie. Great to be with you again, Doc. Likewise. So I wanted to spend some time unpacking your TEDx talk Mm. because you had to cram a lot of information into six and a half minutes. Yeah, which was... (laughs) How did you do that? (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because I started out with... Um, obviously it was the same topic, but I was using all statistics and wanted to make it very, um, you know, intellectual. Here's, here's the data in other words. And what wound up coming out of it was very different than that. Yeah. And so for our listeners that don't know, the TEDx talk is called understanding the genetics, the biomarkers, the biomarkers of addiction, understanding the biomarkers of addiction. And it really goes through your why. Yeah, and it really made me do a lot of retrospection. Yeah. A lot of retrospection in my life. Um, First off, do I want even my intimate story Mm -hmm. of how I was affected by it to be out there? Yeah. Yeah, to an audience of 900 and then to a world of anybody that has access to the internet. Right. And then beyond that, it involves other people. Right. You know, so was that okay to do? My daughter was going to be in that story. Right. So was that okay? So it really took a lot of, okay, time out. Let me think about this. This is not what I thought I was signing up for. Turned out to be something completely different and and good. Yeah. I mean, how many lives have changed just based on those six and a half minutes? Because you talked about addiction. You talked about mental health. You talked about adoption. You talked about being a doctor, you talked about being a parent, mm-hmm. you talked about being a spouse, something for everybody. And science. <laughs> and science <laughs> in six and a half minutes. So I think uh, a compelling place to start is obviously at the beginning, your why was twofold. Right. One was as a doctor, right. right? So you began your practice in physical medicine in a rural area. Right. And Some take it, years take it ago. from there. Right. Yeah. Some 35 years ago. And what I was seeing in that pain management space that patients were discussing was the try this, try that approach Mm -hmm. to pain meds, which wasn't working. It was 35 years ago. So kind of chalked it up to, well, maybe it's because we're in such a rural area and it's underserved and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, that's what's, that's what's there. That's who's practicing there. So then 20 years after that, I'm in urban area and thinking, okay, we're going to be using more science. This is going to be different. And it was the same exact thing. It was try this, try that. If it doesn't work, it will double it. We'll half it. We'll change it. And that 35 years ago, I was seeing dependency starting to come about as a result. Mm -hmm. And then in the urban area, I'm seeing it move towards addiction. It was because it was different in the, in the country versus a city. No, mm-hmm. it was because people were using for so long right. that their body shifted from dependency to an addiction. Yeah. And I think that's important not to try to split hairs on the definition of the difference between dependency and addiction, but rather what is happening in that time span biologically. Right. And so I think regardless of it, be it a pain medication or a mood stabilizer, your body is still having to figure out, do I need this? How much? Why do I need it? Where do I put it? No matter what you put in. Right. So can you talk about some of the pathways that we measure through our panel that are affected by 
a medication? Sure. Um, you know, there's targeted medications. Example, antidepressants or SSRIs are targeted for the serotonin uh, neurotransmitter. Right. What we often see at Wired BioHealth and Wired for Addiction is that people have been on SSRIs for years, for decades, mm -hmm. and the SSRI was never created to be long-term use. It was for acute situations. Really? And we don't even have the data of what happens when it's long-term use, when it's been decades of somebody using it, other than your liver has to work harder, mm -hmm. your kidneys have to work harder, your bladder has to work harder. And so often I see people's results where that SSRI was not effective for them. Their serotonin is still in the tank, yeah. nowhere near that sweet spot that we're looking for. So it was ineffective to begin with. We take an even deeper dive when we do the genetic SNP portion mm -hmm. of the lab panel and find out that, for example, this SSRI was going to have less effective result for this particular individual. In other words, it was probably never going to work for them to begin with. Yeah. So that's just one example of a neurotransmitter. Yeah. I always think it's so interesting when somebody is suffering from depression and they get put on an SSRI mm -hmm. because serotonin is not the only neurotransmitter Correct. responsible for mood regulation. Right. I mean, how frequently do we see clients that they're suffering from depression, right? We see that they say it but we take a deep dive into their physiology, their serotonin's actually high, but you would never know that. There could be plenty of other neurotransmitters such as dopamine, epinephrine, histamine, phenylethylalanine that are responsible for that depression. Yeah, we could be looking at serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, one, two, all three, three all four of those. Right. We don't know unless we measure, which is why we do what we do. Yeah, I mean, there's nobody that can look at you and say, yep, I can tell your PEA is high. Like, <laughs> that that doesn't exist that would be a cool party trick but maybe a pickup line maybe a pickup line right um but that's just not the way it works and so when you talk about in your ted also that it takes time right it takes time for people to learn to think a new way right. you know what we do is so far advanced that so often we hear from our clients of gosh how come no one has ever talk to me about this. I'm like, because no harm, no foul, your doctors aren't even aware that it exists because they are so inundated, quite frankly, with paperwork mm -hmm. instead of being able to see patients yep. and hear patients and listen to patients and treat patients. That's a whole nother subject. You can tell I can get a little worked up about that <laughs> and what's happening to our, our health system. Um, but it, it's, they don't even know it exists because they don't know what's out there of the latest and the greatest. I mean, this is what we do. The technology for one of the parts, what we look at, only became available in the machines. The technology became available in 2015. Mm. You know, then we spent three years in COVID. Right. So people aren't really knowing that this is out there. This is mainstream yet, but our best songbirds are the people whose lives have changed dramatically. And then mm. they tell everybody, they tell everybody that there's yeah. actually a way to measure and to change. Yeah. And what I think is so empowering is that the individual feels different, but the people in their lives that may have been this close to writing them off right. say, I see a change in you. And what that can do to a family dynamic, 
Right. Maybe you've got a wife who is just disgusted with the husband's behavior or the kids that say, mom just doesn't love me anymore. They start to see those changes and the opportunity and hope that comes out of that, unlike anything else. Hope is what allows people to hold on, to be willing to take the time to make the changes back to time. It yep. takes time, right? Yep. Our clients typically start seeing changes early, mm -hmm. week, couple weeks, and then it progresses from there. I was talking to a, uh, one of our clients in Australia yesterday, and he said, I just started phase three, and it's amazing, and it's profound. Wow. And that's when we're getting into the genetic portion of things. Usually the most profound part is when the levels of those neurotransmitters and hormones come more towards the middle of where they're supposed to operate at optimally. And the person feels so much better. When we get into those other layers, the genetic portion of things, we enhance what we're doing. But I thought that was really, really impactful, what he said yesterday. Yeah, and it does make sense that that phase three, so as Dr. Higgins said, everything is broken up methodically into four phases. And so in phase three, that's almost where I feel good, can I feel better? Right. And I think that's interesting because that's when we start getting into the neuroscience expression. Right, right. Say we're looking at um, someone's mitochondria, right? Eighth grade biology, the mitochondria, the powerhouse, powerhouse of, of the, the cell. cell. Yes, nailed and it. So, <laughs> so everybody knows that part, but what does that mean? It's where we get energy, how our body creates energy. So imagine how we feel if we never have energy. Do we feel depressed if we're using words that we want to throw around? Um, do we feel like we have a lack of drive? Do we feel like we're craving something outside of ourselves in an addiction type of thing? What is it that we feel when we have no energy? We don't exist. If we don't have energy, we fail to exist. We die. That's what happens. Yeah. So when we get to that layer and we're looking at things like, you know, to say under the microscope, we're looking at things so small yet so powerful, it enhances what we're doing with everything else. Yeah. And when we think about I feel different within the first week or two weeks, right. a lot of other drugs is what well, we have to give it two weeks to see if it's gonna work. <laughs> Usually in the SSRI world, it's, you, listen, you have to give it 30 days, right? and then we'll see. And then, and then we'll we, see, see and then what? we're giving it another 30 days, and then yeah. we're giving it, you know, 90 days, right. and then, well, we're gonna double it because it didn't work in the first 90 days, and then we're gonna half it because it didn't work in the first 90 days, you know, it's <laughs> the definition of insanity. And had we not had anything better to do, that's what we would keep doing. Right but now we have something better. Technology has evolved, as I say in the TED Talk. Technology has evolved. We have to use it. And more importantly, what was the line in the TED Talk? It's, it's like, why weren't we using technology to evolve this area of healthcare right. as well? Why? Because it's mental health? Because it's the spectrum of mental health, healthy, addicted, what happens in between here? Mm -hmm. Is that why? Because we don't want to talk about those subjects? Because there still is in reality a stigma and we want to make believe there's not. Yep. Also something that I say in the TED Talk is addiction is not a moral flaw. It is science. Yep. You know, if someone has diabetes, we don't say to them, why are you so weak? Just don't eat that, right? right? 
But somehow when it comes to mental health addiction, we think it's okay to say things like that to people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And then even in your TED, which was only filmed um, August of last year of 22. October. October, sorry. You referenced one in four have a diagnosed mental health condition. And, And I say diagnosed because that's people that have been willing to go to their doctor to put themselves out there because that's really difficult for people to do. Right. <clears throat> and then, you know, it's difficult for people to make an appointment with a doctor to begin with. Right. That layer of it, the mental health part, because it becomes so personal. And, and we've right. done that as a culture. Right. Instead of it's just another part of healthcare, talk about it just like you say I have whatever, you know, incontinence. Well, let's get it fixed instead of being uncomfortable all day. Yep. Right. This, this is difficult to do. So diagnosed being there's a lot more people undiagnosed. And at that time of the TED, although it was post-COVID, the numbers hadn't come out yet. Right. So the numbers were one in four. One in four people is diagnosed with a mental health condition. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Now, post-COVID, Kaiser study came out, 53% of the population diagnosed with anxiety and depression. That's a huge number. That's diagnosed. And if you look at undiagnosed added to that, it is by far the majority of the population. So the whole point of that was, well, in the TED, if I'm here to talk about addiction, why am I talking about mental health? Because that's where it starts, Right. right? Not healthy one day, sick the next. Not healthy one day, addicted the next. It's all the living in between that brings us to either end of that spectrum. Addiction, there's always an underlying mental health condition. You don't even know it and you are trying to self-medicate. All you know is I tried this and when I tried it, I feel better. You don't even realize, oh, that's self-medicating. Most people wouldn't know that. Right. Like what? I'm just having a drink. Right. Why do you go back to continue to do it? Because initially it feels better. Initially you think you found that this is it. Eureka, Mm -hmm. I nailed it. And it works until it doesn't work. That's exactly right. And coming to mind right now are the neurotransmitters and hormones and genetic SNPs that we actually measure in our panel. And I can think two come to mind immediately that explicitly say prone to addiction. We're looking at GAD1 and MAOA. Right. So now think about the other contributing SNPs related to those things, be it COMT, SLC6A4. Um, There's another one I'm blanking on right now, but related to how your mental health plays out and then how you are going to try to alleviate that discomfort because it is unnatural as a human being to stay in a state of discomfort right it is very normal to self-medicate i want to stop hurting how can i do that for some people it's drugs and alcohol other it's gambling others it's pornography others it could be a work addiction an exercise addiction but that makes you feel better right until it doesn't work anymore it works until it doesn't work and that's how the story moves on 
Yeah, I'm excited to explore more parts of the TED, but I think this is a good place for us to leave it now, Doc, for this episode. Sure. So if any of this is something that's resonated with you, head over to our website. It's wiredbiohealth.com. Or if you have more of an addiction interest, it's wiredforaddiction.com. Either way, the office number is the same. It's 1-888-841-7099. I encourage you to talk to one of our health consultants because they're going to understand your story and how we might be able to optimize it to help you live your best life. Right. And watch the TED. Yeah. Watch it's the gonna TED. It's going to be really helpful to watch the TED, um, understanding the biomarkers of addiction with Evelyn Higgins. Um, watch the TED, listen to this, and then any questions, that's why we're here. We're here for you. Yep. Thanks, Thanks Doc. Jackie. See you next week. Bye.